Well, join me as we turn in our Bibles together to Genesis chapter 27 as we continue this morning our ongoing studies through God's first book in God's Word. We are now over halfway through our ongoing studies, and once again, we have a large portion of Scripture to look at this morning. We pick up where we left off last week in chapter 27, so we begin in verse 41, and we'll go all the way through the end of chapter 28 today as we see God's promise continue to go to the next generation, as we see it now firmly rooting itself not just in Abraham and then Abraham's son Isaac, but also now Abraham's chosen grandson named Jacob. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through his word. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. The words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? So then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's, and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he has, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. And Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. 
And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is none other than the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we do long for your presence even now. That you would send the Spirit into our hearts, into our homes, into this place as we want to hear your word of promise once again. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things from this text. May we genuinely experience its comfort, its security, even your nearness as you draw near to us. Help me to preach as you say I must, with clarity, with boldness. Help us to see Jesus Christ lifted up on high that we might look on him and live. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if any of you can remember or guess who the most famous American was in 1927. It was not President Calvin Coolidge, nor was it that great, notorious, and infamous Chicago mob man named Al Capone. It wasn't even Babe Ruth, the New York Yankee slugger who was soon to nab the home run record. It was a relatively obscure U.S. airmail pilot who had shocked the world and really become the most famous man in the world at that time by flying nonstop from New York to Paris, crossing the Atlantic Ocean. A miraculous flight, many considered at this time in air technology. And you might know that his name was Charles Lindbergh. And when Lindbergh touched down in Paris, the world's newspapers gushed forth praise and editorials and opinion pieces, marveling at his bravery, marveling at his industry. And the most famous piece actually written in all of newspapers at that time, in that era of newspaper print, was written by a man named Harold Anderson in the New York Sun. And it was titled, Lindbergh Flies Alone. And it famously asked this one word question, alone. And then Anderson began to say, is he alone at whose right side rides courage with skill within the cockpit and faith upon the left? 
Does solitude surround the brave when adventure leads the way and ambition reads the dials? And of course, his answer to such rhetorical questions were no. However, actually alone Lindbergh was on that flight. He was never truly alone. And it's a truth we even see in our text today, because I wonder when the last time was that you felt alone. You know, kids, maybe it was a physical sense of aloneness. Parents left you at home. You're alone on the bike path. You're the only one playing at the playground. Or maybe it was the sense of relational aloneness. You don't have any friends or family members nearby to keep you company. Perhaps you've recently felt emotionally alone. You could sing with that old spiritual, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. Maybe even spiritually alone. Finding yourself in the wilderness and wondering, where is God? Where is His peace? Where is His protection? Where is His provision? And perhaps you know that for those of you in Jesus Christ, however actually alone you might feel, you're never truly alone. For God is always with His people. And that's the rich promise that we find over and over in our text today. It very much is the main theme of the portion of Genesis we want to study together today. The good news that God is with His people wherever they go. That God promises to be with His people. Not just Jacob, but all of Jacob's descendants in the faith. God promises to be with them wherever they go. So maybe you noticed even this Emphasis on God's presence. You could stare down again at chapter 28, verse 3. Isaac is talking about the blessing of Abraham going with Jacob. Then, of course, in verse 15, God comes and he announces to Jacob, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And then even as Jacob responds in worship in verse 20, he says, If God indeed is going to be with me, then he shall be my God. So perhaps you're listening or watching this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. What kind of comfort do you have in times of loneliness? What kind of security do you have in times of isolation? I do hope that we can all see this morning that everlasting comfort Almighty security is offered to us in Jesus Christ. He himself who said, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He whose name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So if you look down again at the text, it really has two simple parts to it. Chapter 27, verse 41, through chapter 28, verse 9, we'll just notice as Jacob's flight. And then the remainder of chapter 28, verse 10 through 22, Jacob's sight. Because again, the promise is moving to the next generation. And what we see Jacob doing, this child of the promise, this chosen son of God's sovereign grace, is that he's going fleeing and and seeing in this passage. So where we left off last week was, of course, at the end of chapter 27. Made it all the way to verse 40. Chapter 27 is all about Jacob stealing, really grabbing by deceit the blessing that belonged to the firstborn. He dressed up as Esau, his older twin brother. His mother, Rebekah, had all this great scheming 
strategies in order to dupe old dying Isaac to give the blessing to Jacob. And sure enough, it was successful. It brought about in God's sovereign, mysterious providence. uh, That great word that he said all the way back in chapter 25, verse 23, that the older, that being Esau, would serve the younger, that being Jacob. And in that blessing, Isaac said those very words, that Jacob was going to be lord over his brothers. And as you might expect, Esau wasn't terribly happy about getting duped out of this blessing. And so Esau's rage becomes the reason for Jacob's flight. Notice verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to him, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So students, you need to remember, if you just glance back to the beginning of Genesis chapter 27, that there Isaac was old, he's blind. He himself, in verse 2, thinks he's going to die very soon. And so evidently Esau agreed with this assessment of his father's longevity or lack thereof of life. He thinks his father's going to die relatively soon, maybe a few days, maybe a few weeks. And he says, once daddy is dead, I'm going to go murder my brother Jacob for what he has done. And I wonder, of course, how you might respond in hearing that news that your sibling wanted to kill you. Because, of course, we know the text tells us Rebecca heard Esau's words. And again, she's got a plan that she wants to put into place. She's got urgency. Notice what she commands Jacob in verse 43. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Now, you want to see urgency in these volley of verbs that follow and commands. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran. We might say something more akin today to flee for your life. You must get out of these tents if you want to survive. Because she knows that, of course, Esau's rage is real. That if Jacob tarries, she not only will lose Jacob, but Esau as well. Because notice the question she puts forth at the end of verse 45. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Now what that means, children, is she's expecting, if Jacob sticks around, that Esau is going to kill Jacob. And then Esau is going to have to be put to death because of his murder. And she's going to lose both of her twins in one day and she can't stand the thought. And so she reveals herself to indeed be that scheming and cunning mother as she puts a plan into place in verse 46, which is maybe altogether different than the one you would expect given Esau's murderous intent. Look at verse 46. She goes to Isaac and says this, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these... One of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Now you may wonder, what's the deal with the Hittite women? You know, if you glance back to the end of chapter 26, we were told in verse 34 and 35 that Esau had taken these two Hittite women to be wives. And verse 35 says, these Hittite women made life bitter for Isaac and for Rebekah. And so it's almost as though Rebekah realizes, I wonder about this. Why, shouldn't, why couldn't she have gone and said to Isaac, Esau wants to kill Jacob. So you need to get Jacob out of the house. Or maybe it's because Isaac himself wasn't completely happy with what Jacob had done. And so she kind of circumvents 
that possibility of division by getting to a point where at least she and Isaac agreed these Hittite wives are making our life bitter. And I can't stand the thought of Jacob marrying one of them as well. And so we need to get him out of here and go find a wife from my brother Laban. So Jacob needs to go find a wife from Uncle Laban's family. And you'll see as we move into chapter 28, Jacob clearly hears that from Isaac. Isaac says, you got to get out of here. you got to go find a wife from family members. But then in a way that is perhaps revealing, maybe Isaac's awareness of the promise indeed going not to Esau but to Jacob, look at what he, le- he sends Jacob out with this benediction in verse 3 and 4 of chapter 28. He says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Again, you need to see the constant faithfulness of God to his promise. These are almost the exact same words we've seen multiple times. Go to Abraham, then go to Isaac. He's even using the name of God, God Almighty, that Abraham himself heard at the beginning of Genesis 17, when the Lord appeared to him. But what's unique about this benediction, this blessing that he sends Jacob off with, is verse 3 at the end, that Jacob would become a company of peoples. And the reason that's interesting, because it's the first time that we come across this word that usually is translated in our English language from the Hebrew as assembly. It's actually the Old Testament word for church. So, you could rightly translate it by saying, Jacob, the Lord will bless you and you will become a church of peoples. And the reason why that's significant is every Lord's Day, when churches around the world gather together, assemble together, or a company, a congregation together, what is happening but God's faithfulness to a promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 28? You can indeed trust that God is true to His promises. Because even our very existence at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, covenanted together as proof that God is bringing about His blessing to the nations. So Jacob goes off to the land of his uncle Laban. And then you'll notice the story has this kind of, again, minute momentary interjection of Esau's life. And it's a rather sad scene you get in verse 6 through 9. Because look at what Esau does after overhearing, or at least hearing about, what Isaac said to Jacob. You know, interestingly enough, it, it's, it's kind of fascinating as you, as you listen to the dialogue and subsequent responses within this family. It often seems like everyone's eavesdropping on everyone. That they're always outside the tent listening to what is being told. And Esau's response is quite surprising and certainly practical for us if we understand it rightly. Verse 6, Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him and said, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. So what Esau does, if you glance through the rest of that small section, as he goes and gets another wife. This one's not a Hittite wife. This one is an Ishmaelite wife. This one is not a Canaanite wife. This is one that comes from, 
grandfather Abraham's half-brother, I'm just, yeah, half-brother Ishmael. So it's kind of within the family. But if you know anything about Ishmael's family, it's this idea that these two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, one is chosen, one is not. And so Esau is picking someone not from the Canaanite families, but someone from the line that was not chosen, these children of Abraham. Hardly that much better, is it, than the Hittite woman? Certainly not looking for any sort of divine blessing by taking yet another wife to himself. But what Esau is trying to do, if you see it rightly, is he's trying to get his father's favor by marrying someone who's not a Canaanite woman. He hears his father's blessing go to Jacob. He must not take a wife from the Canaanites. And Esau sees that as a recipe for blessing. If I just go do that, I'm going to get my father's blessing. And how often it is that even Christians and Christian churches look out on individuals or other congregations and that they see God blessing them and they think, if I just do it that way, if I just somewhat robotically imitate what they're doing, we're guaranteed to get a blessing. Forgetting that that's just an act of the flesh where faith is required. Understanding the nature of God's word and God's promise and Esau can't comprehend it. So it's another sad scene, isn't it? With his older twin brother to whom the promise does not belong His rage results in Jacob's flight, and we see now in verses 10 through 22, this amazing sight that Jacob receives. Look at verse 11. He came to a certain place, that's probably after about three days' journey walking. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now, kids, if you stick your nose back in verse 11, you'll see three times what's mentioned. This word, place. So it's significant where Jacob is in this moment. Okay, so you need to think of the geography of this journey. He's going from south to northeast, more north than east, but south to northeast. It's a journey from where he was at that time in Isaac's tents to his uncle Laban's homeland of about 500 miles take you about three to four weeks, depending on how fast you walk, to get there. As best we can tell, he's in this area about 12 miles outside of Jerusalem. It's an area where all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 verse 8, his grandfather Abraham built an altar. So it's a significant place, but Jacob isn't aware of it. He's almost retracing Abraham's steps in reverse. Where Abraham came down, Jacob is just going right back up. And Jacob, too, is going to experience the presence of God, the mercy of God, and the kindness of God as God arrives in a most unexpected way as he lays to sleep on that stone pillow. Last night, Emily and I had surely been asleep for only a couple of minutes when our two-year-old Boston cried out over the monitor. And Emily rolled over and said to me, How does he always know because we're in just that season with the young, youngest child in our family where it does feel like, more often than not, within minutes of going to bed, no matter what time it is at night, he's going to cry out for something and wake us up. And she says, how does he know what is going on? And that kind of interruption of sleep is totally unwanted, right, in our circumstance. But what, what, what Jacob gets here 
is God interrupting his dreamless state? Because God always knows what his people need. Jacob is off on his own. He's surrounded by enemies. If he goes back home, there's a murderous brother waiting to kill him. As he's going north, we're soon going to see he's going to run into a devious, unscrupulous uncle, eager to deceive him just as Jacob deceived his father. Surrounded, encompassed, really by enemies on every side. And look what God knows Jacob needs. Verse 12. Jacob dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Perhaps you know songs like Jacob's Ladder have seen pictures of Jacob's dreamy moment in the past of Sunday schools in your youth. Uh, What you need to know here is that ladder really is not a good word for what Jacob is seeing. It's why the NIV would render it staircase. It is truly more of a stone staircase. But if you understand the way that ancient Eastern people would try to meet with their deities in that culture, what you need to see this is really not even a stone staircase. This is something of a stone ziggurat, if you know what that looks like, this kind of spiral, pyramid-like structure that was understood to be the place where gods met with their people. What Jacob is surely seeing then as the angels are descending up and down on it is, is something that immediately for his culture and context represents a place of religious meeting. It's a meeting place. It's a household place. It's why even he'll later call it the house of God. And he sees angels ascending and descending on it. And if you're familiar with this story, I've always wanted to know what those angels were doing. Flying around, marching around, dancing around, running around, singing around. But what's more important is that God is next to Jacob. Because although the text continues in verse 13 in the ESV and says the Lord stood above it, it's better translated the Lord stood beside it. In other words, he's next to Jacob. As Jacob is looking at this highway to heaven. And hear these words of comfort that Jacob needs. Because God always knows what his people need and when they need it. Verse 13 through 15. He says, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your offspring shall be blessed, and all the families of the earth as well. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. And surely, we we will see it in a second, that this was incredibly comforting to Jacob. But again, think about the original audience hearing this for the first time. Jacob's descendants on the precipice of the promised land, likewise encompassed by enemies on every side. And they hear this promise that to them, the offspring of Jacob, God promises, I will be with you and will never leave you. You will receive this promised land. So victory is certain. Comfort is promise. Provision is provided. And what you need to see, of course, is by faith in Jesus Christ. Kids, all of these promises do belong to you as well. There's nothing in verse 13 through 15 that doesn't belong to you likewise if you come to Jesus Christ in faith. All of these promises are yes and amen in Jacob's true offspring. 
God's son. And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, what you need to see is, again, everlasting comfort, almighty security. It belongs to you in Jesus Christ. All of these promises can be for you today if you would but turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. You too can feel, I trust, the great good hope that comes from this good news that God will be with his people wherever they go. Some of you maybe know that a fair amount of my academic study has focused on these journals written by a few 19th century Scottish Presbyterian pastors. Friends in the ministry, friends as they cared for one another through their pastorates, shared pulpits together, administered communion together. And it didn't take me too long into reading these journals, these diaries, that I noticed how they often when speaking about their devotional life, would refer to places in Jacob's life as emblematic of their heart's passion. So here's what I mean. One of these pastors on his birthday, he recorded this. Spared to my 38th year, while others are taken, I long to live for more of God alone. I hope for Bethel visits. Often yet in my pilgrimage that quicken men. Now if you look down at verse 19, what does it mean by Bethel? Bethel, the house of God, the place where Jacob is there in this moment in Genesis 28. It's the name that he gives what was formerly called the city of love, of Luz. This Bethel visit, this meeting place with God. I wonder if you've ever had such a prayer. I want more of those Bethel visits. More of communion with God. More of an experience of God's presence through His Word and Spirit. What might that do to your life if such Bethel visits become more commonplace? What does it even do to Jacob's life, this experience at Bethel? Well, there's a threefold response I want you to see that follows Jacob's experience. First of all, Jacob responds with reverence. Look at verse 16 and 17. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Yahweh is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. My kids, you can circle the word awesome in verse 17. And understand that's the right way to use the word. It's this overwhelming sense of awe that causes you to be afraid. What floods into Jacob's heart in this moment when he realizes what has just happened is fear. It's godly fright. This holy reverence before the Lord because who can stand in God's presence? Who can experience God's presence and not feel this divine godly dread? Pressing down and weighing on the heart. I wonder when the last time was you had this sense of reverence. Have you ever had this sense of fearing God? If not, maybe you've never truly met Him. Maybe He's never truly met you. Jacob responds with reverence, number one. Jacob responds, number two, with allegiance. Sets up this stone pillow as a pillar, this altar, this meeting place with God. He names the place Bethel in verse 19. And then what you see in verse 20 through 22 is actually the longest vow in all the Old Testament uttered from a single individual. 
And verse 20 and 21 is this vow of allegiance, isn't it? Look at what he says. Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then Yahweh shall be my God. And you do want to think carefully about Jacob's vow here. Maybe on a first reading it seems like little more than a faithless bargaining with God. Okay, if you really do what you say you're going to do, then you're going to be my God. And that is entirely possible, that that's the way we should take it. I think more likely, though, is you need to understand how vows worked in the ancient East. It was very common for one party to make a vow and the other party in this covenant relationship to respond with a vow. So I think it's much better to understand it with this tone of, if God is going to do all this for me, how can He not be my God? How can He not deserve my allegiance? So you see His reverence, His allegiance, but also finally His benevolence, because He sets up this pillar again, calls it God's house. Look at the end of verse 22. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So benevolence, isn't it? I will give a tithe to you, is what He says. This is a voluntary sacrificial gift to the Lord before it was ever commanded of Jacob's offspring. You do know, don't you, that an awareness, an experience of God's presence opens the heart in generosity, opens the heart and soul in benevolence that you might return, thankfully, what God has given to you, a portion given back. So this is Jacob's response to What he has seen, Jacob's sight has led him to reverence, allegiance, and benevolence. No sweeter promise has he heard than God's promise to be with his people wherever they go. If you get somewhat bored this afternoon and want to look for a sanctified way to spend a few minutes on the Lord's Day afternoon, you can read the conversion story of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It's easy, you can find it free anywhere online. It's relatively short, but it's quite humorous uh, to read as this 15-year-old was converted to Jesus Christ, this 15-year-old who would eventually become, by all accounts, the greatest English-speaking preacher in the 20th century. And it happened on a January morning in 1850. He was on his way to church when, as one historian has said, a snowpocalypse hit And so Spurgeon didn't make it all the way to his intended place of worship that morning. He stopped by the wayside at this primitive Methodist chapel. And the regular preacher wasn't there that morning. And so one of the lay members got up to preach the sermon. And he selected as his text Isaiah 45 verse 22, which would have said in Spurgeon's hearing, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And so this lay preacher that even Spurgeon calls rather stupid begins to preach about the joy of looking on Jesus Christ. How simple it is. Even a child can look on Jesus Christ. And Spurgeon, as he recounts the story, he says, eventually he stared straight at me. And as only primitive Methodists could do, he shouted, young man, look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look at Jesus Christ and live. You need only look. And did you see how our passage is full of looking? How many times this word behold is used? 
Four times, if you trace your way through the text, you're going to find it in this sight that Jacob received. So to help you not miss what you must see about God and God's Son in this passage, let's notice two more things as we begin to conclude. First, I want you to behold the God who draws near. Behold the God who draws near. Look again at verse 13. The Lord is standing next to this ladder, next to Jacob, and we find, Behold, the Lord said, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Skip down to verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. We won't understand this passage rightly until we see the divine initiative of God in the text. There's nothing in Jacob's life, there's nothing in the previous pages that leads us to conclude Jacob was looking for God in this moment. It doesn't even say in the passage, I didn't know God was going to be here. He's actually never used language of God being his God. Do you remember last week in chapter 27 when Isaac asked him, how did you find this game so quickly as Jacob is working his deceptive scheme? Jacob says what? The Lord, your God, provided it for me. Here is God coming, undeservedly, unexpectedly, drawing near to a wretched, weak, and weary sinner that he has chosen by grace to give his great promised presence. I'm sure many of you, and I hope many of you at least, can likewise recall times when you've been far away from home in something of a wilderness season like Jacob, and undeservingly and unexpectedly, God drew near. He said, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. You need to behold the God who draws near to sinners. And certainly on balance in the whole of Scripture, we need to say, secondly, behold the Son who draws near to sinners. Because Jesus tells us, we already read it, didn't we, in John chapter 1, that he is the staircase spoken of here in Genesis 28. Now think with me for a minute about staircases in Genesis. When was the last time we saw a staircase in Genesis? Tower of Babel, chapter 11. And it's going in the other direction, isn't it? These men that are grasping for heaven, they want renown, they want security, and they said, we're going to build this thing all the way up to heaven. And remember what God says, he's I've got to come all the way down just to see it. But here, what does he do? He does come all the way down as this staircase goes from heaven to earth. That what these men at Babel grasped for in their own pride and sin, renown and security, those very promises now belong to Jacob. Not because he grasped for them, but because God graciously gave them to Jacob. So, fast forward the tape in redemptive history. So many pages forward, so many chapters forward, so many centuries forward. Jesus is calling his first disciples to himself in John chapter 1. Philip is evangelizing, telling his friend Nathaniel about this rabbi, this Messiah who's come. And you remember Nathaniel says, I mean, nothing good ever comes from Nazareth. And he says this, and Jesus responds, well, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel says, you are indeed, of course, 
the Messiah. And Jesus says something interesting there. Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. I am thoroughly convinced what Jesus saw in Nathanael's life is meditating on Genesis 28 under that fig tree. Because he says, behold, a Jacobite who is not like Jacob. And you are going to see greater things than even this. The angels ascending and descending on what? The Son of Man. He is the way that God draws near to us. Christ Jesus has opened a way for us to have access to God's keeping power. For an experience of God's presence. Because of course Jesus himself as we began even so many minutes ago said, Behold, I am with you always. Even until the end of the age. So how is it then? That God is with his people wherever they go. He is with his people through his son wherever they go. To be with them. To keep them. To provide for them. To protect them. And I wonder if he is with you today. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would indeed bless us in these promises that by faith we might receive what you so graciously gave to Jacob that we would lay hold of all of these blessings these kind mercies that are offered to us in Christ be with us this day keep us wherever we go that we might glorify you in every place we pray in Jesus name Amen